And that's when we enter the next section, the family of Abraham, who will become known as Israel. What God does is he steps in to this nomadic man. Abraham is not a man of the city. He is a nomad. He has not become a part of the conglomeration, the, the loss of community, the technology will rule my life. He is not a part of that. Now, he does move from nation to nation to nation as he tends to his sheep, but he's not a part of that. And yes, according to Joshua 24, Abraham is worshiping the pagan gods. He did not have a relationship with Yahweh. He did not know who Yahweh was. He was worshiping pagan gods. His father, Terah, was worshiping the pagan gods. Yet, he is not wrapped up in this Tower of Babylon kind of mentality. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go out from your country, your relatives, your father's household, to the land that I will show you. First, leave your paganism, your idolatry, your family. Leave everything that represents the Tower of Babylon, everything that is not godly. Walk away from that disinherited world. And go and follow me, and I will bring you to a land. Then I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, so that you will exemplify divine blessing. I will bless those who bless you, but the one who treats you lightly I must curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God picks one man out of the chaos, and he pulls him out of the chaos, just like he pulled Noah out of the destruction of the chaotic waters to save and preserve him and to start humanity all over again. He then reaches in the chaos of the nations, the empires, the governments, and he pulls Abraham out and he says, leave it all behind and follow me. And if you do, I will give you four things. I will give you a land. I will reconnect you to the land. You are a nomadic person who has disconnected the land because you symbolically represent all humanity disconnected from the land. But I will put you back in the Adama. I will put you back into the soil. And I will give you a land flowing with milk and honey. A land that is so rich and so resourceful that the most expensive, sweetest things, milk and honey, will flow like rivers in abundance. I will give you a land and reconnect you. I will rebuild the Garden of Eden with you. Two, I will make you into a great nation. Fruitful, multiply. I will begin to multiply my image and my blessings through you. And your children will become the new inheritance, the new image of God, so to speak. Not that all of humanity is no longer the image of God, but they're not going to be, God's not going to be working through them anymore for the plan of redemption. Three, I will bless you. I will bless you just like I did Adam and Eve in the garden. I will bless you abundantly. And I will bless you to the point that I will protect you from people who try to harm you. And when people do good to you, I will bless them as a result. I will bless you. I will give you the fruit of the Garden of Eden. And fourth, so that you can be a blessing of the world. I'm not picking you, Abram, so that I can favor you and spoil you and treat you better to the exclusion of everybody else. I did not disinherit the nations to walk away from them completely and never have anything to do with them again and to pick you and you're special and great and nobody else is. I've picked you to rebuild the Garden of Eden, to rebuild the blessings of the Garden, to bless you and to give you a great fruitful image so that you can bless the world. 
so that you can be this shining example of what it means to truly be the image of God, redeemer, order, life giver, light of the world, and that the world will see that and want to be a part of that. They'll look at the dysfunctionality of their life, and they'll look at the wholeness of your life, and they'll say, I want that. And you will say, let me tell you about my God. And they will leave their nation, just like you did. They will leave the governments. They will leave the institutions. They will leave that, just like you did. And they will join you and become an Israelite and find redemption. That was the goal. If you can no longer use the broken system anymore, then you build a better system that's so attractive that people will want to leave the broken system and come to the new system and find redemption. And this is how God is going to love the world. He's not going to love the world by trying to use the thing that is horribly broken and rebellious. He's going to love it by building a new kingdom and making it so attractive that people want to leave the brokenness and join the light, to join the light. And this is what he's going to do with Abraham. This is the garden all over again. A land, a blessing, so that you can be a blessing to the entire world. Expand the garden. It's expand the garden all over again. Go out, Abraham, and be a blessing to the world by bringing order and redemption to everything. And so Israel, Abraham, Abraham becomes the new chosen nation. The nation that God is going to use. Not favor to the exclusion of others, but use them to attract, pull in the world into God's plan of redemption and salvation. So they are going to be the new inheritance. This will only be possible through faith. It will not be your ethnicity. It will not be your gender. It will not be your status, your wealth, your accolades, your skills. It will be by faith. Abraham responded in faith and over time grew in his knowledge and relationship with Yahweh, becoming a great man of faith. Yet three different times, he threatened the promises of Yahweh. Even though he's a great man of faith, he was still selfish. He was still sinful. And three times he greatly threatened the promises of Yahweh. Remember, Sarai is barren. Sarah's barren. She cannot have kids. And God says, I'm going to miraculously give her the ability to have kids. And from that kid, Isaac, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Isaac is the promise. So, what does Abraham do? Two times, he goes to visit a foreign king, an Egypt pharaoh, and then Abimelech in the Negev. One time in Egypt, the other time Abimelech. And Abimelech, he's afraid that Abimelech will see how attractive his wife is and kill Abraham to take Abraham's wife as his own. That's not uncommon in the ancient world. Kings take whatever they want and kill whatever opposes them. So Abraham's so afraid for his own life that he's going to die that he passes his wife off as his sister and then the kings take her. Abraham only cared about himself. He was willing to use his wife as a shield to protect his own life. Well, at least you're still alive, woman. Now, later when he goes to Abimelech, Abimelech says, why did you do this? Well, Pharaoh did too. But Abimelech said, why did you do this? And Abraham responds by saying, this is what we do all the time when we go to foreign countries. So this means that he just didn't do two times, like the Bible recorded it. He did it over and over and over again. He constantly kept using his wife as a property piece or a pawn to sacrifice for his own well-being. That's not righteousness. That's not godly behavior. 
But not only does he show that he's not righteous and that he's not godly, but he threatens the promises of God. Because if Pharaoh or Abimelech slept with her and impregnated her, then the promises of God cannot be fulfilled. Because Sarah's son is the son of Pharaoh or Abimelech, not the son of Abraham, who's supposed to be the chosen child that will begin the nation of Israel. So not only is Abraham being selfish and not caring about his wife, but he's threatening the very promises of God. Yet God steps in each time and protects Abraham and Sarah from this mistake to not only protect them because he loves them, even protect them from their own sin and stupidity and selfishness, but to protect the promises that he made to them. The third time was that even Sarah was a part of this and said, hey, you're not having a kid like God promised. So let's take matters in our own hands. Here's my maidservant. You can sleep with her and marry her. So now that you have two wives, because we all know how well that works out, and you can marry Hagar and she will give birth to a kid. And then when she gives birth to a kid, I will claim it legally as my own kid, not hers. Well, that's selfish. Now the law, the Mesopotamian law, allows Sarah to do that. You're allowed to take your maidservant, give it your husband, and claim the maidservant's child as your own, because if you own the maidservant, then you own the child. The law allowed for that. But that's not God's law. That's autonomy. And so she took matters in her own hands. Now this threatened the promises, because now the first son is not Isaac, it's Ishmael. And Ishmael is being raised by this Hagar mother, who is not a part of the Abrahamic covenant. She doesn't follow the promises of God. She's not teaching her child to do this. In fact, when Isaac eventually is born, then Hagar's son and Hagar, Ishmael, threaten Isaac and make his life miserable. And God says, this can't happen anymore. And so Abraham constantly takes matters in his own hands and threatens the promises of God. Now, most likely he does this multiple times. These are just three examples that the narrator shows. Yet despite this, Despite this, God still keeps his promises. Abraham doesn't deserve to have the promises kept. But God comes to him in chapter 15 of Genesis and says, I am going to make you into a great nation. And I will make a covenant promise, a binding covenant promise that I cannot break, that I will do this for you and your descendants. Abraham believed and it says credit to him as righteousness. You're like, this guy is not righteous. How can God call him righteous? Well, that's that practical. You're like, yeah, but he doesn't even look like he's trying to pursue God. He doesn't even look like he's really trying to even love his own wife. How can you call that even practical righteousness? Because the point is by faith. The word believed here is the word faith. And the word faith means this, that when I acknowledge that I cannot save myself or bring a utopian society by my own works, intelligence, skills, or nationality. But only God can do it. So faith is just basically saying, not by my works, not by my intelligence, not by my skill, but only God can bring the utopia on earth, the kingdom of God, the Garden of Eden. See, the world calls it utopia. The Bible calls it the Garden of Eden. Utopia is what man tries to create through their own autonomy. The Garden of Eden is what God creates through his redemption. And so what you're saying is, I do not believe that I can create my own utopia. Look at humanity for the last several thousand years. We haven't created a utopia. <laughs> in fact, we look very not like a utopia in the last year than ever before. Man tries to create his own utopia through works. 
God creates the Garden of Eden that man and woman say, I can't do anything to create this through my own works, my own intelligence, and I can't do anything to deserve to enter in it. So I'm just going to trust God loves me enough that if I pursue him, then I will be welcomed in. Love, love and faith is what gets you into this. And so Abraham, even though he was not perfect, even though he's flawed, even though he didn't always trust God, ultimately deep down inside, he loved God. He wanted to pursue God, and he repented when he didn't. And God says, that's faith. Advanced membership into this new chosen people. That's membership into this new chosen people. Then God not only makes his covenant with him, but when he makes his covenant, he says the sign of the covenant is circumcision. Now, I'm going to talk about this because circumcision is such an important part in the entire Bible. And I know it leaves some people uncomfortable, but it kind of can't get away from it because it just pops up in like every single book of the Bible constantly. And if it's a sign of God's covenant promises to redeem all of humanity, then he can't kind of just ignore that. But the idea of circumcision is that what God is saying is that these descendants, the fruitful multiply, come from the male and female reproductive organs. And life only comes from the male and female reproductive organs. And yes, we have taken that and we have perverted it. We have sexualized it. And we've even become filled with shame as a result of that. But when God created this, he created it to function a certain way to produce life. And he did not blush. And he did not meant it to be perverted. He did not meant it to be filled with shame. He meant it to be beautiful for a connection of a man and woman and for it to be the beginning of new life. And so he took this reproductive organ, which is a man and a woman coming together in a covenant relationship, and a man and woman producing a new image into the world, and he says, that's going to be the sign of the covenant. Because that's what I want you to do. I want you to become unified together as one nation following God, and then produce images out into the world. And just like the seed of the woman and the seed of the man comes together to produce life, the seed of plants produce life in the land, so you well, this will remind you of my covenant promises. This is about life. And all life comes from seeds. The seed of humans, the seed of animals, the seed of plants. And you work with seeds every single day as a farmer or a keeper of livestock. Or that same, yeah. And every, they're used to that. Seeds are a part of your life. And so God takes what they know, a part of their life, farming and livestock, and he says this seed will be the symbol. These two organs, the male and female reproductive organs, are the only organs in the entire human body to produce life and death. Either toxic urine that's being expelled out of the body is death, or the seed of the man and the woman produces a baby is life. Most organs either filter out and just expel death, toxic waste, or they produce life, like blood. But the the male and female reproductive organs produce both death and life. And so what God is saying is this, you produce death. Your works are always producing death and selfishness all the time. But until you're marked by me, circumcision, can you produce life? You cannot produce life until you're marked by me. And so God, even in Isaiah, uses this image. And he says, just like a woman produces blood in her menstrual period when she does not have life in her, That's what your works are like. Your works are like the filthy rags of a menstrual cloth. That's what you produce. But when that woman becomes impregnated, she produces a baby life. 
And so the Holy Spirit is also described as a seed. All throughout the Bible, and especially in the Second Testament, the Holy Spirit is described as a seed. And the first time we see this is when the Holy Spirit impregnates Mary to give birth to the ultimate image, Jesus. And so the idea that what God is saying is this organ can produce death, or it can be marked by God or implanted by a seed to produce life. And so this becomes the sign. Now this is important to remember because the Bible is going to pick up on this circumcision idea that you will either produce death or be marked by God and produce life. And it will continue to use that and it will tie it to your heart later on when we get into the Bible, deeper into the Bible. And so this becomes a symbol of the covenant. You are either part of the nations and produce death, or you can join the Abrahamic covenant and be marked by God, and you can produce life. And the Holy Spirit is going to become the ultimate marking of God. And this is what God is painting the picture here. And then Abraham so gets this, that even in his fallenness, even in his brokenness, God comes to him and says, sacrifice your son. Your son is the seed of the promises of God. Your son is the only way that the promises of God can be fulfilled. But do you love the gift of God and the promises of God, or do you love God more? Are you willing to kill your son for the sake of God? Are you willing to kill the gift and give up the gift and the promises for your relationship with God? This is really complicated. Because on one level, God has said, I promise you that only through Isaac will the promises be fulfilled. And now God is saying, kill Isaac. Kill my promises. What do you do with a God that says that to you? Not only that, God says, this is the son that you love so much, now I want you to kill it, and I'm a God of love. What do you do with that? Not only that, God says, I hate child sacrifice, so sacrifice your child. What do you do with that? Now, you can either say, I knew it. I knew he was a con artist. I knew he wasn't the real God. I'm going to walk away from him and go do my own thing. A lot of people do that when they're faced with difficult situations of who God is in the Bible. Or you can look at what he has done. What does Abraham learn? Abraham's learned that throughout the years, God has honored all of his promises. God kept honoring his promises over and over. And even when Abraham was a scumbag and didn't deserve God to honor his promises, God was still faithful to him. There's no other God or human in the entire universe that's ever been faithful constantly to people unconditionally, even when they're acting like a scumbag all the time. And yet God did. So God is always faithful, no matter what, whether you deserve it or not, and always honors his promises. Then Abraham has learned that God can do anything. Remember the gods are limited to different elements, and they are limited to different regions. Yet God destroys the Egyptians, and he, he overcomes the Egyptians in Egypt. He gives Abraham a child in Canaan. He defeats these armies over here in Canaan when Abraham goes to war. And he, he does all these things over, and Abraham begins to realize that God can do anything. He also resurrected his wife's womb. Sarah became barren. She passed the age of menopause. She couldn't have kids anymore. And God resurrected her womb and gave birth to a child. And so now you've learned that God is faithful to his promises no matter what, whether you deserve it or not. He has learned that God is all-powerful and can do anything. And he's learned that God can raise dead things from the grave. He can resurrect a womb. So what does Abraham do? He kills his child knowing that God will raise him from the dead. He knows that God hates child sacrifice, so God's not going to let this child die or stay dead. He knows that God is faithful to his promises no matter what, so these promises are not going to die. 
and he knows that God is so loving that he would never ask somebody to do that permanently to their child. And so Abraham steps out in faith and says, I have never seen proof of God doing this, but I believe he can because I know he is worth it and worthy and all-powerful and loving. And that's the faith that God asks for us. It's not just a faith that says, yes, God, I will obey like a robot and I will do what you tell me to do because I'm afraid of being punished or I want a reward. It's the faith that's able to connect the dots and say, if God is this, this, and this, and this, that I can trust that he'll be this in the future because he loves me and I love him. And I know he always has my best interest in mind. And so I will trust him. And Abraham does it despite all of his flaws, beside all of his scumbagginess, if that's a word, Despite all of his brokenness, he ultimately said, I believe that you are the best thing out there. In fact, I'm so broken and messed up in my scumbagginess that I desperately need you. And so I'm going to give you my all when I can, to the best of my ability. And that's what God calls faith. That's what God, you don't come and say, I'm it and I can do it bring the kingdom of God. You say, I am broken. I am miserable. You crawl in a broken glass to the throne of God and you beg out for mercy and saying, I want to be a part of the garden and I want to be in a relation with you because I love you, but save me from my unbelief and help me. That's what faith is. That's what faith. And so ultimately, even though Abraham is this horrible example of perfection and ultimate theological righteousness, he's an amazing example of practical righteousness and a heart that desires God and wants to be a part of it. And so God begins to use that. 